passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Our society is fascinated with the end of the world. We just are fascinated with it. There are countless movies. Uh, there are countless TV shows that have been made about this topic and more come out every year, it seems. Uh, they wrestle with many different questions uh, like the nuclear holocaust. What would happen? What would life be like after the nuclear holocaust? Uh, a couple years ago, a TV show came out about what would life be like if all technology stopped working and we had a post-apocalyptic world without technology. Then you have lots of other ones that just wrestle with the question of what would life be like at the end of days? What would life be like if we just had a few more days left on this world? That's a good question to ask. It's a good one for us to ask as well. What would life be like? What would we live like if we knew the world was ending tomorrow? Truth is, it's not just pop culture that wrestles through that. Jesus himself talked about this. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the end of the world. But he also spends a lot of time talking about how to live in light of that truth, knowing that the world could end at any moment. See, Jesus points out that for some people, it could end at any moment. And for many people, every single day, the world does end, oftentimes suddenly, without notice. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 12 of about a man who was so focused on gathering up money, gathering up his possessions, that he decided to build even bigger barns to store them all in. And at the end of the day, he passes away. His life was required of him. And the passage says, and Jesus in this story says, you fool. Your life has been required of you. Another passage in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And he begins to wrestle through uh, what it looks like to know when this time is coming. He says, no one can know what time it's going to happen. But at the same time, it's coming soon. It's coming very soon. So be ready and watch for it. Jesus forces us to ask, what would you do? What would your life be like if you knew the world was ending tomorrow? This morning, this passage wrestles through the exact same thing. It's a passage that wrestles through the issues of how do we live in light of the end of the world? For Peter's audience, this would have been really appropriate for them. Remember, they are facing hardship. They are, for some of them, they are wondering if the world really will end for them sometime soon. And so Peter's words here are extremely important to wrestle through this question of what it means to live in light of the end. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. And as we look at this passage, we're going to look at how we should live in light of the end. How should we live in light of the end? If you look at the very beginning of verse 7, Peter says one phrase. He says, the end of all things is at hand. That's how he starts. The end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. 
So we have to ask, well, was Peter mistaken? Was Peter wrong in writing this? After all, uh, it doesn't really seem like the end of the world was at hand back in you know, the year 60 AD because here we are in, in 2015 and the world still seems to be going on. So was Peter wrong in saying that? Well, to understand what Peter is saying here, we have to understand uh, or look at this question from the context of, of the story of God as a whole. The story of God really consists of four different parts that span throughout history. First is creation. God created all things, and he created them to be good. That's the way he created, and that's the first part of the story of God. The second part of the story of God is the fall, when, things, when sin entered the world and things became corrupted. For thousands of years before Jesus, people lived in this context. They lived in this part of the story of God where there was no hope. But then Jesus came. And when Jesus came, part three started. And this is where Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, offers salvation, offers victory, offers redemption to those who come to him. And from that point, up until Jesus returns someday, which is the final part of the story of God, when we have the new heavens and the new earth, we are living in this time period. We're living in the time period of the gospel, uh, of the, the final age, is what all of the people in the New Testament, they refer to it as. And when they say, when they, what they mean when they say that, is not that the world is uh, supposed to end within five minutes, a lot of people read what Peter said and think, you know, Peter was saying that the world is going to end right now. But that's not what Peter is saying when he says this. Peter is, is referring to the, the entire context of the story of God and saying that nothing else needs to happen for the world to end. Nothing else has to take place because everything has taken place with the resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so what does he mean when he talks about the end of the world? He's saying that we live now in a time period where the end can come at any moment. That's what he's saying, and that's why he tells us that it's important for us to look at this, to, to wrestle through what it means to live life in light of the end. And that's what he tells us in this passage. If, if you open your Bible uh, in verses 7 through 11, it tells us one truth that we're going to hammer over and over and over again, and that's this, that live life in light of the end with both your head and your hands. Live life in light of the end with both your head and your hands. That's what this passage is telling us. That's what Peter is getting at in these verses. And as we jump into this text, we'll see time and time again what exactly it looks like for us to live life in light of the end. Peter gives us several different examples of that. So if you have your Bible, I uh, encourage you to follow along with me, starting in verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I'm just going to stop right there. What does it look like to live life in light of the end? Peter tells us right here off the bat that it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's crucial for us, for our understanding of how to live in this world, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. But not only that, it's the foundation for everything Peter says after this. See, Peter is talking about the end times, and he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so because everything is, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, this is what you should do. And what does he say? You should be self-controlled and sober-minded. See, you will uh, not be able to grow spiritually 
without having a sober mind, without being self-controlled in your life. You can maybe grow a little bit, but it will be ineffective growth. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be self-controlled? What does it mean to have a sober mind? Let's look at each of these terms individually, starting with the, first, or the second one first, uh, what it means to be sober-minded. If you remember from last week, uh, the passage we looked at talked about three general uh, categories of sin. Uh, it talks about sexual sin, talks about alcoholic sin, and he also talks about idolatrous sin. And he focuses on all these different things. And by saying sober-minded, Peter is referring back to that previous section. He's, he's making a play on words here. See, alcohol without moderation will impair your judgment. You won't be able to think clearly. You won't be able to respond quickly. Uh, you won't be able to act appropriately uh, when you're under the influence of alcohol, when you're not sober. And what Peter is saying here is that he's saying that you should live in such a way that you can think clearly, that you can respond quickly, that you can act appropriately in every single situation. But that's not just referring to in the world's eyes. Peter goes deeper than that. He says, in light of the truth that I've just mentioned, and I just mentioned that the end of all things is at hand, in light of that truth, live life in a way that you can think clearly about that. Constantly remember that there isn't all that much time left on this earth. Francis Chan is a, uh, a pastor in San Francisco. He tells the story of uh, when he was um, in his mid-20s, he went to the theater with his grandmother. And they were watching this show. And at one point in the show, his grandmother uh, starts elbowing him. And he leans over and says, yeah. And, and she says, I, I don't want to be here right now. And he says, okay. She says, can we leave? And so confused, they, they both go out into the lobby. And as they get into the lobby, she just looks at him and says, I'm sorry. I just didn't want to be there if Jesus came back right now. If Jesus were to come back right now, that's not the place where I want him to find me. That's what it means to have a sober mind, to think in light of the end. Another way of putting this is to have an eternal perspective on life. And this is a passage that talks about having an eternal perspective and why that is important for us. You might be wondering, well, how do I cultivate this eternal perspective? How do I uh, think clearly? How am I sober-minded in my life? Well, I have a couple questions that I like to ask myself in order to have an eternal perspective. The first one is this. It's, will this, whatever this may be, uh, it could be uh, a movie or it could be, you know, um, doing something uh, for entertainment or, or purchasing something, will this be helpful or will it matter one year from now? Will it matter 10 years from now or 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now? This is really important for me, especially when it comes to uh, financial questions. Uh, I have a tendency to be a compulsive buyer, and so Amazon is one of my best friends. It's also one of my worst enemies. And so when I have something in the shopping cart, I have to ask myself, uh, will this matter in 10 years? The, a lot of times the answer is no. A lot of times the answer is, well, some of the times the answer is yes, I guess. Not, not a lot of times. Let's be honest, Jordan. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a pa that's a question to ask yourself to help you as you work through what it means to have an eternal perspective. Now, I want to be honest. That can be a dangerous question. It can be a dangerous question because a lot of times when we ask that, we're going to get to the answer, no. 
And then we're going to think, well, God doesn't want me to have anything fun. God doesn't want me to have fun to enjoy this life. And so I'm going to be honest, there are times where I ask that question when something is in my Amazon shopping cart, whether it's a book or a movie or whatever, and I say, no, this won't matter in 10 years, and I still go ahead and buy it because God has created us to enjoy his creation. It could be a dangerous question to start asking that. Will this matter? And so I, I think there's a more helpful question for us, and that's this. Would I be embarrassed if Jesus came back right now? Would I be embarrassed if Jesus came back right now and saw what I was doing? You spend your entire Saturday watching college football and Jesus comes back. Would you be embarrassed by how you spent your Saturday? You take an extra long lunch break. And when I say extra long, I mean like three, four hours because your boss isn't at work and Jesus comes back right then. Would you be embarrassed in that moment? That's what it means to have an eternal perspective, to continually think about life in light of the end. That's what it means to have a sober minded, have a sober mind, or to, in other words, to live life in light of the end with your head. Second thing uh, Peter says is to talk uh, or to live with self-control in your life. See, from an eternal perspective comes a calling to act. And when we act, it takes self-control in our lives. Last week, as we jumped into the end of 1 Peter chapter 3, we saw that there is a constant battle, or the beginning of chapter 4, excuse me, there is a constant battle in our lives between the human passions, the passions of the flesh, and following the will of God. When we choose to follow the will of God rather than the passions of the flesh, then we are exercising self-control. And that's what it means to live life in light of the end with our hands. These two things are living life in light of uh, the end with our head and with our hands, crucial for living faithfully as Christians. Not only are they crucial, but they're the foundation for everything else that we're going to look at this morning. As we continue looking at these verses, we're going to look at a couple different examples of what it really means to live life in light of the end. We're going to ask, how do I live life in light of the end with my head? How do I live life in light of the end with my hands in this situation, in this area of life? So uh, again, please pick up in verse 7 with me. We're just going to start again at the very beginning of verse 7. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter tells us the first reason for us to have self-control and a sober mind is for prayer. How do we live life in light of the end? It's by making prayer a priority in our lives. See, an eternal perspective motivates prayer. Uh, an example of this. A couple uh, weeks ago, a, a good friend of mine uh, that I grew up with uh, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, incurable cancer, and she was only given a couple months to live. Now, over the last 10 years or so, this friend of mine uh, and I had grown apart, hadn't really kept in all that much touch, but we, I still considered her a good friend of mine. And so, even though I hadn't really talked to her for 10 years, I decided that Crystal and I were going to drive six hours to go see her and talk to her in that moment. What changed? 
What changed in that moment where I was completely content not talking to her for 10 years, and then all of a sudden I decided I was going to drive six hours to go and see this person? I realized that there wasn't all that much time left with them. See, before the diagnosis, I could always say, well, you know, I can talk to them later. I can catch up with that person at a later time. It wasn't a priority for me because I didn't see the urgency in it. I think the same thing can be said about prayer. A lot of times we don't pray because we don't think it's all that urgent. We can put it off until later. We can do it at a later date. We don't realize fully, consciously, with every fiber of our being, that this life has an expiration date. We can't afford to just push prayer off until later because we don't have all that much time left. One pastor uses uh, an analogy of thinking of, uh, of prayer in a certain way. He says our culture tends to think of prayer like a, a bell that you can use to call your butler. And so you ring the bell when you need something from your butler. And when you don't, you don't even need to worry about the bell. You don't have to worry about prayer. That's the way that our culture thinks of prayer. But he says that's not what Scripture describes prayer like. In fact, Scripture, the Bible, has a very different picture of prayer. He says prayer is a lot like a wartime walkie-talkie. Imagine that you're in the middle of a foxhole, and you've been given a direct line of access to the commander of the entire army. This is a person that you can call for support, for reinforcements, for encouragement, for guidance. That's what prayer is like, that you have a direct line of access to the very commander of the entire army. That God, through prayer, will speak to us, will give us strength, will guide us in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the war that we experience inside our hearts. That's an eternal perspective on prayer. So what about self-control? How does self-control play into prayer? Well, self-control actually allows for prayer. And if you aren't self-controlled, then you are not going to pray. That's just the way things work. When you aren't self-controlled, you aren't going to to pray. Because prayer is tough. It is difficult. It is a struggle for us. It takes a lot of effort to pray. But prayer is crucial. Prayer is a reminder to us that we are dependent upon God It is a sign of humility that we would depend upon God, that we would ask God for something that everyone else in our culture thinks that we can provide for ourselves. And it shows us what we value. When we spend time that the world would say is just completely pointless because you're just sitting there talking to no one. It shows you what you value. You value spending that time in prayer. Now, how are these two related? Well, it takes self-control to pray, as I already said. Uh, It takes self-control for us to say no to some things so that we can say yes to prayer. Uh, One pastor, John Piper, uh, really enjoyed this quote that he gives when talking about self-control and prayer. He says this, One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for a lack of time. In other words, what he's saying is that if we are consumed with doing other things in our life, if we are consumed with social media at the expense of prayer, we have no excuse. If we don't have self-control to say no to social media so that we can say yes to prayer, we will neglect prayer. The same thing can be said about Netflix or about TV or thousands of other things that are good 
things. If we don't say no to them, we're going to say no to prayer. And prayer is vitally important compared to them. If you don't pray, it's not because you don't have time. It's because you value other things as more important. In my own life, I've struggled with that a lot, of wrestling through what do I value, how can I exercise self-control so that way I can say yes to prayer. One final example of self-control and prayer, and that is uh, bedtime. Um, some of the parents are really excited right now. Uh, when we talk about bedtime, uh, uh, John Piper, again, I, I think I've read this quote before here on Sunday morning, but I love it so much because it's slightly comical, but it's so true. He says this, sometimes you need to stop trying to save the world and just go to bed by 9 p.m. And what he means when he says that is that it takes a conscious decision to go to bed at a decent time so that way you can wake up early enough to spend time in prayer, to spend time reading God's word. If we want to, and if we aspire to spending time with God early in the morning, around 4 or 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., whatever your time slot is, we can't do that if we consistently go to bed at 11 or 12 or, or 1 or 2 or later. We just can't do it. We have to have self-control to say no to go to bed so that we can wake up earlier to pray. Now, I'm not saying that you have to get up early to pray. Some people actually spend most of their time with God after everyone else has gone to bed. I don't really care when you pray, but it takes a conscious decision to say no to other things, to carve out time in your schedule to pray. Now, some of you may object. And say, you know, Jordan, I, I've tried praying before. I've, I've really tried. But I, it just is a straight-up struggle for me. It is tough for me to pray. And are you saying, if I don't get anything out of it, that I should continue to pray anyway? That sounds an awful lot like legalism. Many of us have probably wrestled with that question before. We've wrestled with whether I should just give up praying because it doesn't seem like God hears me. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anything out of it. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves in those situations is, how long have I been trying to pray? How long have I been consistent in seeking God's face, in praying over these situations? I don't know a single person on the face of the planet who is naturally good at prayer. I am far from naturally good at prayer. I'm far from being good at prayer. It's a conscious decision, a battle every single day to spend time in prayer. But it is oh so important. And that comes back to the eternal perspective. One final note on prayer and then we'll continue. Um, if you struggle praying because you don't really uh, know how to pray, or you don't know what to pray, I just have three suggestions for you. First one, uh, if you have an iPhone or uh, an Android, there's this app out there called uh, Prayer Mate. Just one word, Prayer Mate. Um, and I absolutely love this app. Um, it has helped me be consistent in praying for a diverse amount of things. You can really customize it to whatever you want it to be like. I really encourage you guys to check that out. If you are struggling through praying for the same thing, over and over and over again. So that's prayer mate. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, 
I want to talk a little bit about prayer books. Uh, we have a tendency in our culture, especially in uh, evangelical Christianity, to think that if I'm not uh, creating it, if I'm not praying from my heart extemporaneously without any sort of help, then it doesn't mean that I mean it, that it, it's not heartfelt. But for thousands of years, the church has used the book of Psalms as a prayer book. Christians, for thousands of years, have prayed through the Psalms. They'll read a Psalm out loud to God, and then they'll just pause and say, you know what, God, this is what I'm praying for right now. It's, it's a beautiful way to guide your prayers, to make sure, first of all, that they are biblical, and second of all, to help you know what to pray in those moments where you can't think of what to pray. Uh, this is going to sound really weird, but I have some really good Anglican friends. Uh, that's not the weird part. The weird part is that I'm suggesting that uh, the Book of Common Prayer, surprisingly, is a really good tool for people to pray. It's a wonderful tool that God has given to not only the Anglican church, but his entire church to help us to pray. Another wonderful book, probably my favorite book out there, is called The Valley of Vision. And it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And I love that book because every single prayer puts into words what, I'm, what I feel, but I just can't put into words because I, I, I'm not that eloquent. And I love praying through those prayers. And so if you struggle knowing what to pray, I just encourage you to check out some of those resources and know that it's okay. You're not a lesser Christian because you use a prayer book. In fact, you're being intentional about helping yourself in your prayer life. Third thing is this, um, be realistic about how much time you set aside to pray. Not every one of us has the time or even the ability uh, to pray for an hour a day at a time each day. It's just the reality. Some of us, uh, a lot of us, same thing with 30 minutes. We, we don't know how to pray for 30 minutes at a time, uh, and we don't have the time to do that. So I have a suggestion for you. Uh, it's based off the life of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is the greatest uh, preacher the English language has ever seen. One of the greatest preachers of all time. Lived in the late 1800s. And it is said, uh, he, he actually quotes his entire ministry to prayer. And it's said that Spurgeon never spent more than five minutes at a time in prayer. Never spent more than five minutes at a time in prayer. But on the flip side... Spurgeon never went five minutes without praying. When I hear that, I think, well, that's a, that's a good, tangible, attainable goal in my life. When I try to pray for too long, I can sometimes start to babble like a pagan, and Jesus says, don't do that. He says, God already knows what you should be praying for, what you need, so just say it. If you can only pray for two minutes at a time, or three minutes at a time, or four minutes at a time, whatever... Don't feel bad about that. Just pray. And when you're done, stop. But then pray again in a few minutes. Pray again another half an hour or whatever. It doesn't matter. But if we could emulate this life of Spurgeon, this calling to spend all of our lives dedicated to prayer, it would change us. And that's what it means to live life in light of the end, to make prayer a priority. Let's keep reading, uh, picking up in verse 8 says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sin. Another way for us to live life in light of the end is to love recklessly. Scripture calls us to love other Christians with zeal, calls us to love non-Christians with abandon. 
Scripture calls us to love recklessly. And this same eternal perspective that leads us to pray actually leads us to love because love is vitally important to God. God is a God of love and his desire is for his children to love, to love one another. In fact, Paul in the book of Romans goes as far as saying that love, that love is actually the fulfillment of the law. He says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's why Peter tells us here that above all we are called to love one another. He's saying that our motivation for love is found in the love of God for us. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John. He says, we love because he first loved us. And that's the motivation for all the love that we show to those who are around us. The fact that we have been loved by God is an incredible source of motivation for loving others. And I would even go as far as saying that you can't truly love someone self-sacrificially without first understanding the love God has for his people. We love because he first loved us. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, he's talking to his disciples and he says, let me tell you a story. There was once a man who owed a couple million dollars to the ruler of the land. And the ruler of the land said, hey, it's time to pay up. And this man comes before the ruler and says, there's no way that I could possibly pay this off right now. Please give me more time. Well, there's no way that he could possibly pay this off in any way. And the ruler is gracious to him and forgives, cancels his entire debt. A man walks away without owing a single drop of money. And he runs into a guy who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he says, it's time for you to pay up to me. And the guy says, I, I don't have that money. Just give me a little bit more time. And the man who had been forgiven millions of dollars refuses and actually throws the other guy in jail because he won't give him a couple hundred bucks. And Jesus is saying in that passage that if you have been forgiven much, you will forgive much. Or in other words, if you have been loved much, which you have, you will love much. That's what Peter is saying here when he says that love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin because of the love that God has for us. Many of us here have been sinned against by others that are in the audience or in the congregation with us. For some of us, it's been a great deal of harm that has been done to us, a lot of hurt that has happened to us. But the sin that has happened to you is nothing compared to the amount of sin that you have done to God, the amount of hurt and wrong that you have done to God. So does the love of Christ for you help you to forgive those who have hurt you? Does it help you to cover a multitude of sins? This is what it means to have an eternal perspective when it comes to love. It's not saying that love is easy. It's not saying that forgiveness is easy. And it's, it's really honestly shouldn't be easy for us. But are we committed to it? Are we committed to loving others, committed to loving recklessly? And that's where self-control comes in. See, it's easier for us to not forgive people. 
It's easier for us to not love them. When we have been hurt, we want to hold on to that hurt, and we feel justified in doing that. That's the easy way. But self-control says, you know, I have been hurt deeply. I don't think that you deserve being loved, but I'm going to love you anyway, because that is what the gospel tells me Jesus did for me. The love of God inspires us to love others. And that's what it means to live with the end in mind. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Another way that we live in light of the end is to be hospitable. We're hospitable to those who are around us. This is a real, tangible example of ways that we can love others. What love looks like in our lives. What is hospitality? Is it just a ministry that, you know, hands you uh, a bulletin as you walk into the church? Is it the people who, you know, prepare the coffee and the cookies? Um, some of the kids didn't like that there were raisins in there, so maybe, maybe that's a bad example of hospitality today. Uh, is that what hospitality looks like? If it is, you know, this hospitality thing, it really isn't all that bad. It's really pretty easy to love people on a Sunday morning, to show hospitality to them on a Sunday morning. But Scripture calls us to do something deeper. This goes to a whole other level when we invite people into our homes. And this is what genuine love looks like, to have people in your homes. This is something that God has been convicting me of uh, for the last couple months. A couple months ago, uh, I had the, the chance to listen to uh, a professor from the school that I graduated from share uh, basically his dissertation. And his dissertation was written on the, the book of Luke, and he said that the book of Luke is all about food. I was really confused by that. If you're not confused by that, then maybe you're not paying attention. Um, he said, let me explain that. The, the gospel of Luke is all about Jesus. But anytime something important happens in the Gospel of Luke, it's done over a meal. Anytime something significant that Jesus says happens, it happens over a meal. Read through the, the book of Luke and you'll see it. It's, it's fascinating. And his calling for us was to go forth and do likewise. To be like Jesus, to, to have people over for meals, to encourage them through hospitality. To walk with one another through hospitality. To have people in your homes. This is what true Christianity looks like. To be committed to having people into your home. I'm going to be honest. Having people in your home can be a pain. It can mean that you're going to have to spend more money. Uh, it's going to mean that you at least think that you have to clean up a little bit more. Uh, you have to carve time out of your busy schedule to do that. It's tough to be hospitable, but it's even tougher to do it without grumbling, which is what Peter calls us to do here. And that's where an eternal perspective comes in. When we realize, when we realize that God calls us to love others, and when we realize that hospitality is a tangible expression of that love, we will welcome others into our home. That's what God is calling us to do, I think, here at Crosswinds Church. And I want to issue this challenge to us. Uh, I want to issue the challenge of inviting one person or one family that you don't know that well uh, from the church body into your home one time a month. Just one meal a month. Invite someone that you don't know that well into your home. 
You can do more than that if you feel like God is calling you to do so. But it's an important way for us to encourage one another, to spur one another on as we grow closer to Jesus. Uh, when Crystal and I lived in Chicago, we, ended a, we attended a church that was uh, quite a far ways away from where we lived. And the reason why we went to that church is the first three weeks that we were in that church, we were invited into four homes while we were there. For us, even though it was a long drive, it seemed like a no-brainer for us to keep going back because we had been shown love and we had been shown hospitality from these people. Let's do the same. Now, if you have little children, uh, you might object and say, well, this is too difficult. And you're right, uh, it's going to be more difficult for you than it is for other people. Uh, if you say, well, tear down uh, after the service has to happen, well, you're right, uh, tear down has to happen, someone has to tear stuff down here. If you live uh, far away from Spencer, if you live in Spirit Lake or Ayrshire or Everly or, or somewhere else, you're going to say, well, I live too far away from that, and you're right, you do live further away. If you think that you're not a good cook, I, 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 maybe you aren't, I don't know, there are thousands of reasons, thousands of excuses for us not to have people into our homes. You'll always be able to think of one. That's where self-control comes in. Are you committed to this calling, to be hospitable to those who are around you? This won't happen naturally for us, but it's crucial for us to make people feel welcomed and to spur one another on in their Christian walk. One final example of this, of, of how big of an impact this can make on you. About 10 years ago, I was in, Chicago, uh, in Guatemala with a group of people for a couple of weeks doing mission work. And after the long day of traveling, we get to our uh, place, the, the town that we're staying is a remote village. And uh, I get assigned to, to stay with this family of seven. And I walk into this house with another guy, and we are eternally grateful that they just, even though they don't speak English, and we don't really speak all that much Spanish, they point us right towards where we should go and where we're going to stay. And we have two nice beds for us. We sleep the night. We wake up in the morning, and I, I start to wonder, um, it's really not all that big of a house. Where was everyone else sleeping? And on my way out of the house, I realized that the other seven people, the seven people in that family, were all sharing one bed. So that two white guests could have their own bed. That's hospitality. Hospitality is a sacrifice. Hospitality is something that won't be forgotten. I will never forget that family because they showed love through hospitality. And that's what it looks like to live in light of the end. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And we're just going to stop right there. What's another way that we can live life in light of the end? To serve others. Peter kind of switches gears here and he begins talking about how each and every one of us has been given spiritual gifts. God has gifted the church for the purpose to serve those who are around us. There's a lot of great stuff 
in these verses, uh, stuff that we can't get into. I just want to highlight a couple things for us. Uh, first, the first phrase there in verse 10, it says, each has received a gift. One of the biggest lies that Satan tells us is that I don't have anything to offer. I can't offer anything to the church because I'm worthless. I don't have the talents or the gifts to give something to serve others. It's one of the biggest lies that he tells us. Don't believe it. God has given every single Christian gifts, ways to serve and to love those who are around them. God has blessed each and every one of us with a gift. Second phrase that Peter has here, he says, use it to serve one another. Honestly, another one of the biggest lies that Satan tells uh, people in the church is that I don't need to use my gifts. There are plenty of other people who are doing it. And so we just use the gifts that God has given us for ourselves. You know, this is the purpose for gifts in our lives. God has given us spiritual gifts to invest in, to pour into those who are around us. And this is carried into the, the next phrase here that Peter says, uh, as good stewards of God's varied grace. The reason why we serve others is because we are trying to be good stewards of the grace that God has given us. We're not the ones who ultimately own the talents and gifts that God has given us. You would be furious if you're the person who was managing your retirement account, uh, took all the money and used it on themselves, and you'd be righteous in being furious at them. In the same way, God expects us to use what he has entrusted us with to serve those who are around us. Another little caveat thing there that he says, uh, he says, varied grace the word varied is a beautiful word that is used uh, oftentimes to refer to different colors, to multicolor, to refer to every single color that you can imagine. And when you look at passages in Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts, passages like this in 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Colossians 2 and 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those are not exhaustive lists. Those are representative lists. lists. God has given us so many gifts. He's given innumerable gifts to his church in order to serve those who are around us. Peter closes that section by talking about two specific categories. He refers to speaking and he refers to the gift of, of acting. And really, if you think about it, that's really the calling of the Christian to speak the gospel and to live out the gospel in our lives. And Peter says that we are called to do so reverently. When we speak, we're supposed to speak in such a way that it's almost like we're speaking God's very words because God is speaking through us. And when we act, we're supposed to do in such a way that God himself empowers us because God is empowering us. God calls us to serve others and he gives us the strength to do that. What does it look like to live in light of the end to serve others? And one final guideline there at the very end of verse 11 just want to briefly say this. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The final calling for us as Christians is to do all for God's glory.
do all to God's glory. This is the ultimate purpose of the spiritual gifts God has given us. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to live for his glory. And that's what it means to have an eternal perspective. When you realize that, when you realize that that is what God is calling you to do with your life. To be focused on his glory means to have self-control. It means you're asking yourself, what does it look like? What should I be doing in order for God to get glory? On the flip side, what should I not be doing for God to get glory in my life? And if we're focused on these things, then we are living life in light of the end. See, a Christian is one who is called to live life in light of the end. And we do that with our head, and we do that with our hands when we are self-controlled and when we are sober-minded. And if I asked you, as we close, if I asked you to describe a fool, what is a fool or, or a foolish person? I'm sure we could come up with countless examples. We'd share of a student at college who uh, doesn't have to pay for a drop and decides to not go to any classes, not study once, and flunks out because they're so focused on socializing in the present that they can't think of the future. Or we'd give an example of the person who doesn't make a single uh, contribution to their retirement account right now because they want to spend it on frivolous things. They're so concerned with the present that they can't think of the future. We'd give hundreds of examples of what a fool is. But I would add that a fool is someone who does not live life in light of the end. It's someone who doesn't focus on trying to cultivate an eternal perspective in their lives. It's, it's someone who isn't trying to be self-controlled with their life. Let us live life in light of the end. Now, Peter gives us plenty of different areas of, of where we can uh, work this out in our own lives. How we can cultivate uh, eternal perspective and how we can make sure that we are self-controlled in our lives. And I encourage you to pick one of those and focus on it this week. For some of us, God is calling, to, uh, calling us to focus on our prayer lives, to make prayer a priority. And so this week, we should focus on, on why is prayer important to God, and not only that, to carve out time in our lives to actually pray. For others of us, God is calling us to love, to think about the love God has for us, and from that point, to love others, to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. For others of us, we are being called to be hospitable in our lives. And, and from this point, we're, we're being called by God to go forth and to invite people into our homes this week. And for others of us, God is calling us to serve, to use the gifts he has given us to serve those who are around us. And if that's you this week, I encourage you to come talk to me, to one of our other volunteer leaders. God is calling us to live life in light of the end. And if we do this, if we as a church committed to do this, to live life in light of the end, to have an eternal perspective, to be self-controlled, we would be changed. It'd be one of the best things that we could do for our spiritual walks, uh, for our families, for our church as a whole. If we were each committed to praying, to loving, to showing hospitality, to serving, and to doing it all for God's glory, Crosswinds Church would be changed. Spencer would be transformed. This area would be transformed. Friends, God is doing incredible things here in this region. And it is an utmost privilege for us to be able to join in what he is doing here. Let's do that. Let's do that by living life 
in light of the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us. And we thank you that from that place we can live with confidence and that we can go forward from here. God, I pray that you would give us strength to pray. That you would give us strength to love, to show hospitality, to serve, and to do it all for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.